Anyway, let's begin. I am grateful to be here today. It is uh, what I consider an honor and a privilege to be standing here, and thank you, Pastor B, for this opportunity. Some of you here have known me for a long time, and some of you have not. Well, the fact is, I grew up in this church, starting here when I was only about six years old in 1977. Yes, I went wayward for a few years in my late teens. Maybe some of you can relate to that. And then, yes, I left for another 20 years or so to attend Bible college and pastor in various other churches. But I share the same sentiments that many of you share when you say, this is my church. Because for me, this is my church. And this is my pastor. And yes, he's been here for more than 44 years. And yes, he's been here for more than 44 years. Oh, you know what they say, you got to love him anyway, right? Love you, Pastor B. He'll get me back for that one, that's all right. Today is Father's Day. It's a very special day for many of us. And now, if you would, for a few moments, just allow me to share a little bit about my father, whom I loved dearly and who passed away nearly 20 years ago. His name was Edwin Charles Hoyt. Some of you knew him as Ed. He was born in 1940 on a farm in a small community in New Brunswick called Millville. He joined the Air Force after high school and got stationed in Greenwood, Nova Scotia, where he met my mom, Pearl, wherever she is. She's here somewhere. There we go. I tenderly refer to her as Pearl Jam. He went on to become a salesman, my dad did, for various companies and finished his career with a company called Apex Industrial Supplies, which has since been bought out by a company called Acklands Granger. My dad enjoyed the simple things, and he lived a full life. And even though he died relatively young, he was very fortunate to be able to retire early, giving him about five years of good retired life before he died on December 8th, 1999, at 2.02 a.m. in the St. John Regional Hospital at the age of 59. I'm sure Pastor B remembers that night, for he was there in the hospital that very evening. I lost my dad when I was only 29 years old. But you know what? I've never cried over that. Because I had a great father for 29 years. I've got nothing to cry about. The truth is, the story about me and my father, although not perfect, is a much gentler story than many of you would tell about you and your father. And it's not my intent today to ignore or dismiss your story. To ignore or dismiss the many stories that can be told by many of you here today about absent fathers or delinquent fathers. Fathers that severely missed the mark of ever being called what we call a dad. When I lost my dad, God helped me to focus not on what I had lost, but on what I had still. I forced myself to continue to look forward instead of looking back. Yes, my earthly father was gone, but my heavenly father was alive and well. And he had plans to prosper me and not to harm me, to give me a hope and a future. And that is his promise to all of his children. 
On this Father's Day, we will all do well to force ourselves to look ahead and to look up. This sermon series that we're in is called Legacy. And my earthly father left me an incredible legacy. I could talk about the many things that stand out that I'm proud my father instilled in me because he was a good man on many levels. But the greatest legacy that he left was his unfaltering faithfulness to the father. His unfaltering faithfulness to the father. That is his greatest legacy. That is the greatest legacy that we can ever hope to leave behind as well. So today, regardless of whether you are a father or a mother or just possibly a son or a daughter here today, let us all take a hard look at what it means to leave behind a legacy that lasts. The greatest legacy of all, the legacy of an unfaltering faithfulness to the Father. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me, if you would, to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. And if you don't, that's fine. It will be on the screens here for you to follow along. As I read 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verses 1 through 7. 2 Samuel 6 verses 1 through 7 in the NIV reads this. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000. That's a lot of men. It's about 30 times what we have here this morning. 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, or the Ark of the Covenant as we know it, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the Ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab. That's a cool name. Name your kid Abinadab. I bet he'll be the only kid in his class with that name. I guarantee it. They brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And his sons, Uzzah and Ahio, there's another couple of good ones. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. Try and picture this if you would. You have the cart, you have the Ark of the Covenant, you have these guys kind of guiding it, and it's being pulled, and you have 30,000 plus men in tow. It says that they were guiding the new, ar- guiding the new cart with the Ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Just a second here. Verse 6, they came to the threshing floor of Nacon. Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. God struck him down. The oxen stumbled. He reached out to take hold of the ark. God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Oh, come on. He was just trying to help. He was just trying to help, wasn't he? 
what he did just seemed to make sense, doesn't it? I believe that we've all said this at least once before when we read this passage. And we have a soft spot in our hearts for this young man, this poor young man named Uzzah. And we attempt to try and find justification for his actions. He was only trying to protect the ark. He was just trying to help. It wasn't that big of a thing after all, right? Maybe God should have even thanked him instead. He was just trying to help, right? And just like we try to find justification for his actions, we try all the harder to find justification for our own actions. But we look at this story on the surface and we just don't get it, do we? We see him doing the logical thing and then we see God striking him down dead. And we can't understand what's going on. And so then we begin to see God as someone who is unreasonable. The world looks at this passage, and because they don't understand the big picture of what is actually going on, they determine that this is a God they don't want anything to do with. They see him as mean, unpredictable, and angry, and one that they could never hope to please. After all, if Uzzah, who was just trying to help, got strung, struck down dead, what hope do we have? of ever pleasing this God. It appears to us that Uzzah did something that should have been considered okay or even good. But instead, we see God strike him down. Well, what we actually see here in this passage is exactly what it says in, Pro in Proverbs 14, 12. I believe it'll come up here on the screen, where it says, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end... It leads to death. There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. Although what Uzzah did was somewhat justified in our eyes, and presumably justified in his eyes, it obviously was not justified in the eyes of God, otherwise this story would never have concluded the way it did, right? But it seemed right given the circumstances, didn't it? What he did seemed to make sense, and that's exactly the way many people govern their lives here today. If it makes sense, then it must be okay. If we can rationalize it or justify it, or if for some reason it just seems right, then it must be right. But we clearly see here that there is more to right and wrong than maybe what we think. Because looking at this passage, what we think is something's askew here, but nothing is askew. Maybe, just maybe, when we try to determine what we think is right or what we think is wrong, simply with our own minds or with our feelings, we're not always correct. Maybe. Maybe, just maybe, we're not always correct. Let me illustrate this. Let me show you how we sometimes live this out. We say, I'm lonely. And God would never want me to be lonely. And so this relationship must be okay. It just feels right. 
We might say, I'm broke, and I have to take care of myself and my family, so I have to take this money, or I have to keep this money that's not mine. God understands. Or maybe we say, I have to pass this test, or I won't graduate. He wouldn't want me failing, and plus, my parents, they'd kill me. God knows I'm in a pickle, and so cheating is my only option. God understands. Uzzah might have said, I had to touch the ark. I had to rescue it. The oxen stumbled. I had to touch it. We might say, if I don't do the things my friends do, they won't want me around. And God doesn't want me to have no friends. So I'm stuck. I guess I have to. God understands. Or we might say, if I don't do this, I'll lose my job. And I know God doesn't want that. So I guess it's okay. He understands. There are countless, countless other scenarios just like this lived out on a daily basis. The problem is, is that instead of looking to him... Instead of looking to God for his standard of what is right or wrong, we allow our particular circumstances to dictate it. And you know what that's called? That's called relative truth. And even Christians practice it sometimes. We determine truth is relative to our given situation. So we try to bend the truth or adjust the truth so that it better lines up with what's going on in our lives. And just like we would like to think that what Uzzah did was okay, given the circumstances, we like to think our actions are okay many times, given the special set of circumstances that we find ourselves in. Are you still with me this morning? Anybody? You know, I'm just glad that I never struggle with stuff like this. <laughs> you know, sometimes we can bend the truth, we can adjust the truth. And in this world, we find things like relative truth, partial truth, have truths, absolute truth, and even an alternate facts sort of truth. Donald Trump's not the only one that plays with that, plays with that either. You know, to many... Truth has become the enemy. Do you believe that this morning? To many, truth has become the enemy. And a Pulitzer Prize winning author by the name of Herbert Agar, I think his quote comes up here. He once said, the truth that makes men free is for the most part the truth which men prefer not to hear. The truth that makes men free is for the most part the truth which men prefer not not to hear. Sometimes we only hear what we want to hear. And yes, the truth is hard to hear sometimes, but I believe it is the truth that sets us free. Amen? We're going to look back at the scriptures here for a little bit. What exactly is this Ark of the Covenant that we're talking about here? We have this, this major event happening, these 30,000 plus men taking this Ark on a journey, and we have a man dying What's going on with this ark? Simply because he touches it, he dies? 
what exactly is this ark we are talking about here? I believe there's a picture that'll come up, if I'm not mistaken. There it is right there. Okay? Let me explain through Exodus chapter 25 just a little bit what this is. God gave them specific instructions on what it was to be. Okay? It was supposed to be made of acacia wood, two feet by four feet by two feet high. Those were the dimensions. They were to overlay it with pure gold inside and out. They were to cast four rings of gold for it and put one on each corner. Then they were to make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold so that they wouldn't actually touch the ark when they were carrying it. They would carry it with these poles. It goes on to say that they were to make a mercy seat of pure gold or the cover that goes on the top is pure gold called the mercy seat. They were to make two cherubim of pure gold, of hammered gold. One cherub on one end and the other cherub on the other. The cherubim were to stretch out their wings, covering the mercy seat and facing each other. It says, to put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And then it goes to say, and there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you, from above the mercy seat. Did you catch that? There I will meet with you at the Ark of the Covenant. I, God, will meet with you here above the mercy seat. I will speak to you. You see, this is not just any piece of furniture. The very presence of God went with the ark. God met with Moses at the ark. God had them carry it with them wherever they went. It was with them carried by the priests as they crossed the Jordan River, as they marched around the walls of Jericho, and everywhere else they went. The ark was kept right at the center of the camp, and the glory cloud, or God's presence, appeared above the mercy seat. This visible sign of God's presence, this cloud, the glory cloud, would appear above the mercy seat. This was no ordinary piece of living room furniture. This is what Uzzah touched. Even though it was common knowledge that whoever touched it, other than the Levite high priest, would die. You see, they had been taught that from young children, that whoever touched that, they were taught what this Ark of the Covenant was. And they were taught to never, ever, ever touch it. He knew that. He had been taught that since the time he was a child. But he touched it anyway. Why? Well, let's go back to the passage and see if we get to the bottom of this. First of all, let's try and figure out who this guy Uzzah was. He's not just a guy with a funny name. He's an actual guy that we're talking about here. Uzzah. Well, verse 3 is going to come up on the screen, I believe. It tells us that David went to the house of Abinadab. Okay? They brought it from the house of Abinadab. And we know through another passage in 1 Chronicles that Abinadab was who? Abinadab was one of David's, King David's brothers. Okay? So that would make Uzzah the king's nephew. He was part of the household that protected the ark 
in Abinadab's house. Was, it was there for 20 years. He was part of the household that protected the ark, and he'd been around it for years, for 20-some years, and he was even the king's nephew. A little earlier in this story, in 1 Samuel 7, verse 1, it says they took the ark to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eliezer. Okay, so it's at Abinadab's house. We've talked about Uzzah and Ahio. There's another brother. His name is Eliezer. And he is the one that is put in charge of guarding the ark. It goes on to say that it stayed there for 20 years. And again, Eliezer was in charge, not Ahio or Uzzah, but they were in the same household. And it was there for a long time. I suspect that they must have gotten comfortable, quite comfortable with having it around the house for that long. They could never touch it, nor were they ever given the honor of being its protector. That honor, being its protector, was given to their brother, Eliezer, I wonder if there was ever any jealousy involved. Eliezer gets to be the guard. All we can do is sit back at a distance and look at it. But he's kind of the one in charge of this thing. I suspect there might have been a little bit of jealousy. The passage tells us that Ahio was walking in front of the ark and Uzzah was beside it. Ahio was in front of the ark and Uzzah was beside it. I can almost imagine how the conversation between the brothers went that day. Ohio, you go up front. And I'm going to stay right here beside it and watch it and keep an eye on it. You go up front. Then the scripture tells us the moment the oxen stumbled, just a bit possibly, it doesn't say that the oxen fell down and the Ark of the Covenant was ready to fall off the cart or anything like that. What does the scripture tell us? It simply says that the oxen stumbled. I've been on a horse many times. Sometimes the horse will stumble. It doesn't mean I go flying off. It doesn't mean the horse falls down. It just means that the horse stumbled. And that's all the scripture tells us, is that the oxen stumbled. But the moment the oxen stumbled, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark. Maybe to protect the ark. A great theologian by the name of Matthew Henry said this, perhaps he affected to show before this great assembly how bold he could make with the ark having been so long acquainted with it. Perhaps he affected to show before this great assembly, these 30,000 plus men watching, how bold he could make with the ark having been so long acquainted with it. It was in his household for 20 plus years. He'd been around it for an awful long time. He hadn't been the one put in charge of protecting it over the years, so maybe now he was trying to take charge of it somehow. Maybe. Have you ever heard the saying, familiarity breeds contempt? This means that the more you know something or someone, the more you start to find faults and dislike things about them. That's why sometimes we treat our close friends or family worse than we'd even treat a complete stranger. Familiarity breeds contempt. And Uzzah was certainly very familiar with the ark. And I believe that the fact he was so familiar with it tells a big part of the story as to why he treated it the way he did. 
What he did that day, the scriptures call an irreverent act. He had no true respect for the ark or sense of reverence or fear of it anymore. Otherwise, he would have never dared touch it. I don't believe he would have even been as close to it as he was had he had still a real fear and reverence for the ark. He had always known that those who dared to touch it would die, but somehow he didn't really take that warning too seriously that day. In verse 7, it says this. It says, The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark. Because of his irreverent act. Now, what we see here on the surface when we read this, just kind of as we glance through it, what we see in this passage with our, eye, with our eyes as being helpful, God sees with his eyes as being irreverent. What we see as we read it as being helpful, God somehow sees it very, very differently. He sees it as being irreverent. Whose take on this situation do you think is correct? Are we right to show Uzzah our compassion and pity? Or was God right to show him justice? Uzzah acted irreverently, and that's why he was struck down. He placed the things of God, specifically the ark, on the same level as things more commonplace. He acted irreverently. And so do many people we meet every day. Let me share a little story with you from days, days gone by. You may know this name. Josiah Wedgwood, English maker of the famous Wedgwood pottery. He was showing a nobleman through his factory one day. One of Wedgwood's employees, a young boy, was accompanying them on this tour. The nobleman was profane and vulgar. At first, the boy was shocked by his irreverence. Then the young boy became fascinated by the man's coarse jokes and laughed at them. Wedgwood was deeply distressed. At the conclusion of the tour, he showed the nobleman a vase of unique design. The man was charmed by its exquisite shape and rare beauty. As he reached for it, Mr. Wedgwood purposely let it fall to the floor. The nobleman uttered an angry oath and said, I wanted that vase for my collection, and you've ruined it by your carelessness. Wedgwood answered, Sir, there are other ruined things more precious than a vase, which can never be restored. You can never give back to that young man who just left us the reverence for sacred things which his parents have tried to teach him for years. You have undone their labor in less than half an hour. This nobleman lacked a reverence for God and the things of God in the same way that Uzzah did. And because of this nobleman's actions, a young man was led astray. In the same manner, in this passage we looked at, God knew that if he allowed Uzzah to get away with acting irreverently, with many, many, many thousands looking on, these others could be led astray as well. 
They would lose sight of the power of God. They would lose respect for the laws of God. They would begin to question his authority and his judgments. All of these people in that grand parade that day, these 30,000 plus men, had been taught the same thing. You don't touch the ark. They knew it. What if Uzzah had gotten away with it? Had Uzzah gotten away with it, even for reasons that we might deem justifiable? God's sovereignty would have been brought into question. That's why God had to act. And that's why Uzzah's reaching out and touching the ark was not a small thing. And likewise, this nobleman we just read about who acted in a profane and vulgar manner in front of a young, impressionable boy, that was no small thing either. That day in the factory, it may have appeared that because God didn't strike down that nobleman that it went unnoticed by God. But mark my word, it didn't go unnoticed. Any irreverent act, whether it is touching something we shouldn't touch or acting in a way we should not act, it never goes unnoticed. Let me try and draw this to a close here for us. The grand parade we see in this passage, these 30,000 plus men taking the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, this grand parade that we see was going along just great. Verse 5 tells us. It says, David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyles, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. They were celebrating with all their might and with all of their instruments this grand parade was taking place. But then someone got out of line and broke one of God's laws and the whole thing came unraveled. Suddenly God's justice shows up on the scene and a man's life is destroyed. And where's my last page here? There it is. You know, in reading this passage, it occurred to me that I don't know of a passage in all the Bible that better depicts the journey of so many believers' lives as well. Everything is rolling, around, rolling along just fine until we act in an irreverent manner and do what we think is right rather than what God declares is right, and the whole thing comes unraveled. The grand parade of our Christian walk started off so well with great celebration and great rejoicing, only to be destroyed by the willful breaking of God's law. The willful breaking of God's law. You see, Uzzah wasn't able to get away with doing what he thought was right, and if I'm not mistaken, neither will we. I won't. And unless you're more special than the rest of us, I don't think you will either. Just because we think it seems right or feels right or has to be right, that doesn't make it right. God determines what is right or wrong, not us. This passage that we read here today is easily misunderstood. 
just as I seemingly misunderstood it when I first read it to you, and thought, what did he do? Nothing. He didn't do anything. Give the guy a break. This passage is very easily misunderstood. But a proper understanding of this passage will tell us this. And I want you to hear this today. If you don't hear anything else, I want you to hear this. God is not to be properly thought of as unreasonable or mean, unpredictable or angry. And he's also never thought, never to be thought of as a pushover either. Uzzah acted irreverently and lost everything because he lost sight of who was really in charge, of who really makes the rules. I don't make the rules and you don't make the rules. There's somebody outside of us and his name is God the Father and he makes the rules. That's the only way this earth holds together. That's the way things work best. May we not follow today in Uzzah's footsteps. May we follow God's voice and God's law and not simply our own instincts or our own thoughts or our own feelings. Regarding leaving a legacy, Uzzah left behind a legacy of disobedience. That's what he's remembered for. He forgot that there was a lawgiver, one who makes the rules outside of himself. And as a good father, you know what? We make rules for our children as well. Can you still see me? Am I on fire? You see, as a good father, we make rules for our children as well. My three girls are here today somewhere, and they say, yeah, you make rules, you make laws for them. But you know why? It's because I love them, and I want what's best for them. And our Heavenly Father simply wants what's best for us as well. Jeremiah 29, 11 tells us this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. That's the God we serve. That's his heart right there. He desires to prosper us and not to harm us. To give us a hope and a future. God simply wants what's best for us. And with that in mind, today will you commit to living a life of unfaltering faithfulness to the Father? You see, there's no greater legacy that you'll ever leave behind for those that are following in your footsteps than to allow them to see you being faithful to the Father, whatever that may be, whatever that looks like for you. I don't know where you're at today. I really don't. I know a few of you, but I don't know generally where you're at today. But I'm just going to open up the altar here. If you want to come down during this last song, come down and stand here and just renew a commitment that you are going to attempt to live a life of unfaltering faithfulness to the Father like never before at a deeper level than you did yesterday. Because God awakened something in your heart this morning and you said, okay, okay, I'll commit. I will submit to your will because I know your will is for my best. We worship a loving Heavenly Father here today. He's ready to help. He's ready to, to love on you and to empower you to live that life of faithfulness 
that you truly, I believe, want to live. Will you come this morning? Feel free, come down if you'd like and recommit your life this morning to living that sort of life. God bless you. Let me pray for you as you come. Heavenly Father, I pray for your blessing on these wonderful people. I pray that you would just continue to speak to them in that still, small voice. And I pray that you would give them ears to hear and a heart that would follow. Bless them this morning, I pray. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you. Thank you.